0: welcome to Well I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition, about life and about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis and when it did my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, Through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed, life post-diagnosis. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person dementia teaches you this too. In today's podcast I talk to two women who in their different yet linked ways have grown to really appreciate the importance of identity, purpose and togetherness. They know now, to coin a phrase, that together we can achieve anything. The common theme isn't dementia but being the partners of military men, though never fear dementia plays a part in our discussions as you will discover. Heather Sharp and her husband were both serving in the army when, after having their two children, Heather made the difficult decision to leave her job. She didn't know what to expect as a military wife and readily admit she had preconceived notions of coffee mornings and bridge, how wrong she was. Heather, in her words, discovered a diverse, dynamic, and resilient group of women who had all made huge sacrifices to support their partner's careers. She realized that if this amazing set of women harnessed their skills and experiences, they could achieve incredible goals. And so the Forces Wives Challenge was born. Through their feats of endeavor, including climbing the world's highest volcano, they raised funds for all sorts of different causes. My second guest, is Steph Quintrell. Another army wife and mother, Steph worked for many years in the care sector, often among those with dementia. Until in 2019, she was diagnosed with a profoundly life-changing, complex neurological disorder and found herself permanently confined to a wheelchair. Two years later in 2021, she discovered the Forces Wives Challenge on Facebook and immediately recognized the women involved as kindred spirits outdoor, energetic, passionate people. Though she couldn't partake in the physically demanding challenges, she took on an admin role which gave her a renewed sense of self and she loved it. Steph has always been a keen horsewoman and despite her debilitating condition, she retained her ability to ride. It was her husband, John, a sergeant in the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, who suggested that were the forces wives to take on an equine challenge, Steph could participate. This June, Steph will be part of a team crossing the Pyrenees on horseback as they recreate the Second World War Freedom Trail, one of the many escape routes over the mountains into Spain. The arduous 130 kilometer trek will take five days to complete, an astonishing achievement for anyone. A true route to freedom and independence for Steph, who told me, being part of the Forces Wives Challenge gave me back my sense of being, of identity and purpose. I'm a much happier person now. In fact, I have a happier life now than before my disability. The keen-eared among you may have spotted echoes and resonances in these two women's stories of the lives of those with dementia and their loved ones, the busting of stereotypical myths, the shock, disbelief and anger that follows the diagnosis of an incurable condition The fork in the path when someone determines not to curl up and surrender to fate, but to embrace their new life, seek out the best of it, take on new adventures and discover, much to their astonishment, that this new life is not only good, but actually, in some ways, better than their old. And I hope you can see why I was keen to talk to these two extraordinary, inspirational women. So, Steph, Quintrell and Heather Sharp, a very warm welcome to Well. I know now. Thanks so much for having us on Pippa. It's great to have you. First I'm going to talk to you Heather because I'd like you to describe in your own words how and why you set up the Forces Wives challenge and I think you know we were just discussing earlier perhaps you can just sort of touch on the fact that you too had a mistaken stereotypical image of Forces Wives and you know when I heard your words I remembered all the sort of stereotypical images that I had of dementia before my own mum developed it and how my mum's dementia changed everything for me and that's such a common theme isn't it that you don't understand until it affects you personally.
1: Yeah that's so true so like you said in your introduction Pippa I served 10 years in the regular army and had so many incredible experiences and opportunities especially in the adventure world you know had the opportunity to try so many different things and I always knew it was hard for military families, but I never really felt it because I was the one out doing the, all this exciting stuff. I wasn't the one at home. And when I had my children and my husband was still serving, we kind of made the difficult decision for me to leave, and I was now at home. What were you doing? What were you know? What was your role in the army? So I was in the Royal Engineers. So you know, extremely exciting core to be part of um, lots of really interesting roles got to travel a lot and then so the stark contrast between being at home um, and my children were really small at the time I think 18 months and I don't know three and a half something like that so I was at home and then my husband was still going out to work and this was the heights of Afghanistan I think at the time so he was away for extended periods of time and I just remember feeling this feeling that I have never felt before which was unbelievably lonely Mm, mm. it was like I just remember thinking well I'm not going to fit in you know I was surrounded by other military wives and I was thinking you know I'm not going to fit in I'm I don't want to do the things I'm supposed to do and all and all that and I sort of hid myself away Mm. um And it was only really by meeting these incredible women who were from all walks of life, you know, from people with PhDs in neuroscience to Mm -hmm. doctors to nail technicians to makeup artists Mm -hmm. to caregivers to everything you can imagine. All these women had sacrificed so much for the armed forces. And really it was it was these women who would knock on my door and say, Heather, are you okay? Or they would take the kids for. 20 minutes so I could go for a quick run because they knew that that was what would make me feel better to get through the day Mm. and it was this kind of preconceived idea I had that somehow I wasn't going to fit in somehow I was different that actually until my eyes were opened and I was submerged into this world I just didn't
0: realize how incredible this community was. That's so interesting because I think you know one of the reasons I was attracted to talking to you two is that this sense of when you have a shared experience, when you understand what each other is going through as you forces wives did, and as you say, you came from you know a multitude of different backgrounds, but that doesn't matter because you are all thrust into this particular situation together, then you know how to react to each other. So when you're closing yourself off a bit, somebody knows to come round and say, and this is a lot what I hear with people with dementia and their family carers, where they will often say, you know, but these people really understand what I'm going through. I hear that a lot with carers, actually. You know, they will really understand that there can be as much support as you like, but it's no good having a helpline that's closed when I really need it at 2am in the morning when my husband's carrying onto the bed or something. Or, you know, they just understand because they're going through it. And that's what I felt with you, that you created this fantastic community. It came out extremely well, I think, in that great documentary you did of of climbing the volcano and how very, very supportive you were of each other. Just describe a little bit about that incredible experience, which is great for anybody if they want to watch it. I think the documentary is called The Hardest Climb. It's one of your challenges, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so that was the only thing I was ever supposed to do with Forces Wives Challenge. I wanted to take um, the community on a big adventure, you know, something I would have had the chance to do in the military. So, and it was just, I wanted something really, really challenging. So it's a, the mountain is 6,893 metres. So like a kilometre higher than Mount Kilimanjaro, Mm -hmm. give a bit of context. And it was Really difficult. And we took a team of complete novices from not even owning a pair of walking boots to flying the Forces Wives
0: Challenge flag on the summit on International Women's Day. And it's got, you pronounce it, because I'm not sure I can, but it's in Chile, isn't it, the volcano?
1: Yeah, it sort of straddles the Chile-Argentinian border and a very, very remote part of the Actacama Desert. And so setting up forces wise challenge was very much about creating this brand and these challenges where we do these really extreme things like the volcano. But we also last weekend, a a group of women went and did an introduction to hill walking in the Peak District. Mm. And we share this or we wear our leaping lady with pride in the same way that I would have worn my Royal Engineers cap badge. And we We feel that sense of belonging and that pride and that identity. So it doesn't matter if we ski solo to the South Pole, which our members have done, or we walk, go for a day walk in the Peak District. We have this pride and this shared set of
0: of values. Mm. Because you're all women, actually, you have chats about women's issues. So you talk about the conversations you have as you're on your trek, you know, around these These sensitive issues sometimes of fertility, miscarriage, children with special educational needs, typical female issues but sometimes exacerbated by military life. And again, you know, I often say dementia doesn't exist in a vacuum, so the majority of carers are women, actually, as it turns out. And so, you know, you, you have your other life challenges going on all the while you're doing whatever else it is, being a military wife and supporting your partners or being a carer for somebody or... It's interesting that on these treks you're able to talk about that, you know, as you walk. I think there is something about walking, isn't it? There? There's a rhythm and there's a looseness that comes and people are much freer. I don't know if you found that.
1: Yeah, there's something around being in the outdoors and walking next to somebody. So when you're kind of, you're next to somebody, it's quite disarming. Whereas mm. when you're sitting across the table on a you're having a coffee or... Or you know a therapy session or whatever. It's something about you know walking along next to somebody and and just talking. And then obviously it's widely documented the power of the outdoors, just being in nature, listening to the birds, in the elements. And then the magic really happens when you're facing that adversity together. So you're trying to to achieve a goal that's when the magic really happens.
0: That's interesting. There's a, a more of a bond almost when you are facing an adversity together, but of course there is, isn't there? I mean, that, that's shown in all sorts of different situations from the war to terrible calamities. In adversity, we find strength, don't we, I think? And in the bonds, we find strength too, in coming together, which is what you're all about, really, with your Forces Wives challenge. And Steph, you've been waiting patiently. I'm going to turn to you now, and first of all, can you talk us through, Steph, your, your life before your diagnosis of, I think if I've got this right, it's complex functional neurologic disorder, CFND is slightly easier. Before that diagnosis, just because you were working in the care sector, which of course interested me, and in a care home where you care for those with dementia and your history in care. So just tell us a bit about your life before your diagnosis. And I know it came kind of slowly, but just talk us through that.
2: Yeah, so prior to 2019, when I became unwell, I'd had my career in the care sector had spanned 12 years. And I was really, really fortunate to work in different areas. A lot of my time during those years was spent in dementia care. But I also worked with young adults with learning disabilities and additional needs. I worked in residential homes with nursing patients. So I had a really, really varied career and I think that that kind of set me up actually for the future having all of those different experiences being surrounded by lots of very different people and mm. just having that opportunity to understand lots of different situations um, mm. because with the residents in let's say in the care home my last job with residents with dementia you know there's so many different ways it affects and it just yes. it was wonderful to have such a varied Career that really, really was eye-opening the whole time. I was always constantly learning.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And then just say what happened on that, because you'd had a few illnesses in the 15 years or so before 2019, hadn't you? would had ME, fibromyalgia, mobility issues. You've got a son to Dylan, born in 2017. And actually, interesting, you say those two years before 2019, after Dylan was born, you had your best health ever sort of thing. Um, i
2: did yeah yeah.
0: but then um and this is my neck of the woods you you were at the festival of speed at goodwood and just talk to that because then that was quite sudden and shocking really what happened to you there and then how that impacted on your life
2: since a teenager i struggled with exhaustion chronic pain and as you mentioned there i was given diagnosis of the fibromyalgia and the me and I kind of just managed it in those Mm. years running up to 2019 it it affected my life definitely but I was never confined to a wheelchair I could walk but only do short distances and we managed it with painkillers and things like that and I've always ridden my horses which always kept me a level of mobility because obviously I was still keeping myself active Mm. and yes Dylan was born in 2017 so basically in the years prior to 2019 if I was going anywhere I had to do a lot of walking Uh, things like that, then I would use a wheelchair. If it was sort of very short walks, I'd be okay. A little bit longer, I'd use walking sticks. And I just kind of managed it as it was. And in 2019, we went to Goodwood Festival of Speed again. I went every year with my family. So I'd always use my wheelchair to be able to get around the grounds. However, because I was so well after Dylan was born, I was able to go walking with my walking sticks. So I had done that in 2018. And then in 2019, of course, thought the same. I'm, I'm doing really well. I always visit for two days. So went on the Friday with my walking sticks, spent all day, absolutely fine. A bit achy in the evenings, but that was normal for me. Mm. And then I went again on the Sunday and again, went with my walking sticks, feeling absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. Mm. And then we got there early, about half seven. And by about half nine, I was in a huge amount of pain in my legs, sort of, Unbearable amount of pain in my legs. It was really much worse than normal. I dosed up on painkillers and I told myself I'd be fine because that's just what I'm like. I'm very stubborn, very strong willed, and my views were I'm not letting it ruin our day, (laughs) you know, that I just want to go and enjoy the day. By about one o'clock, my legs just weren't working. They just weren't, they wouldn't walk me. I literally could barely move them. And obviously, in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing looking back, I Mm. should have. Obviously, I mean, at half nine in the morning when I was in that unbelievable pain, I should have gone, there's something wrong, I need to go home, but didn't. And I ended up being ferried around on a a golf buggy for the rest of the day at Goodwood. But I went home that night thinking, you know, this has happened before where my legs have just given up completely. And then I go to sleep at night. I used to wake up in the morning and I'd be hurting and achy, but, Mm. you know, back to normal, basically. That was quite normal for me on days that I'd done too much. So I fully expected that I'd wake up on a Monday morning and just be kind of achy and stiff, but get up and crack on. But unfortunately, it wasn't. That wasn't the case. I woke up on a Monday morning and I was in a huge amount of pain. My legs were, were working. They were carrying me, but very slowly. I couldn't seem to coordinate them very well, so I couldn't walk very. Well, I couldn't walk fast at all. Adamant that I would be fine. and I, And I was at work that day. I was manager on shift that day absolutely adamant i would be fine and, and cracked on and went into work i couldn't even drive so it was quite clearly worse than it had been before but to me i just you know, got on with it as i would um and then yeah halfway through the day my legs were just not carrying me again and the next day by the tuesday was the last time i walked properly so that's when i went into the wheelchair mm-hmm. and uh yeah just deteriorated from there never you know never regained any use of what of what I lost. It just I just continued to deteriorate from there for about six months.
0: Yeah. So that Tuesday was the last time you walked?
2: Yeah, last time I walked properly. So mm. probably in the in the kind of couple of weeks after that I might have been able to take one or two steps. Mm. Then it went, but you know, I couldn't. I certainly, couldn't, I couldn't even walk to the car type thing. I might have been able to take one or two steps from my wheelchair to the toilet, for example. Mm. Um, but I couldn't even walk to the car. And then I was still able to stand and wait bear for a couple of months, but wasn't actually able to move my legs and carry myself. And then around the November time, I'm, I remember it. This was July, by the way, when I when I first got poorly. So around the November time, that was mm. it. The first time I was able to weight bear independently. So, mm. so yeah, the last time I, I properly walked was was in July 2019.
0: Yes, I mean that that was really quite sort of cataclysmic for you because you came quite suddenly when it did finally come. And how did you react to that? You said to me that yeah, two years of sort of bouncing about a bit emotionally putting on a positive face to the world, but then actually inside feeling bitter, angry, I mean, completely understandably. I, I don't know how I would deal with something like that. And it took you about two years. Just explain the range of emotions and what you feel like when, or how you felt, I don't know, different for everybody. Because again, yeah. you know, I think this will resonate with people, this shock of getting such a big impactful diagnosis.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, my life just changed overnight. Literally, Mm. my life changed from that first day. I was, so at the time, working full time, obviously, yeah, mum to a two year old, doing my horses Mm. each day. It was, I was a very, very active, independent outdoor person. And obviously, I literally went from that to I can't drive, I can't Mm. obviously get myself around. I had to be cared for every day by my family and my friends. When my husband had to return back, he was posted 180 miles away from where we were living.
0: Mm. So Mm.
2: it was our lives, our family's lives just changed overnight. And I think the first couple of months in the run up to being diagnosed, because it took a few months to diagnose me, which is actually really quite quick um, Mm. Mm. for a neurological condition like I have.
0: Mm.
2: But in that sort of few months, there was still, I guess, there was still hope of. You know, it might just be something that will pass, I'll get yes. better again. I, I think everyone else was, and not that I wasn't hopeful, but I think I I just had a feeling it was just different. I knew it was different. Mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't anything I could have been before. and I knew there was something really wrong. But, yeah, in that in that first few months, it was kind of waiting for, to get that diagnosis. I got the diagnosis, and then I'm faced with a diagnosis that actually... It's not really, there isn't treatment as such. There's rehab for it, but it never worked for me. There's, there's not a lot of research mm. ab- around FND. There's not a lot known. There's not a lot of understanding. And that's even within, you know, doctors. I mean, the first consultant I saw was the first neurologist who I saw who actually diagnosed me, just, you know, he knew what it was, but there was no follow-up to that. So that, that first period of time was kind of trying to get my head around the fact that I had a diagnosis that actually didn't really help because it, it wasn't as if there was, oh, great, okay, we have a diagnosis. Now we know how to treat it mm. because there isn't that option. it's You treat the symptoms, you treat the pain. With painkillers, you can't get rid of the pain. And and as you said, yeah, I'd say that first two years was this period of not accepting it. So I mentioned that I'm a really strong-willed person, very independent, very kind of stubborn so I really struggled with that being taken away from me, the independence being taken away from me, not being able to go and do things that I wanted to, relying sure. on other people all the time. Well, you were young. Having a you two were young year old, too. How yeah, old were you when exactly. you were? Uh, so I was 28. Mm. 20, yeah, mm. 28 and 2019. Yeah, 28. So just turned 28 and I was a, a mum to a two-year-old, but mm. all of a sudden I couldn't look after myself, so therefore I couldn't look after my two-year-old either. Mm. So it was, really, it was really difficult and... I think, in those first couple of years, yeah that bitterness was was one that was really there and and as you mentioned, I did put on a brave face I did because other the people around me, my family, my friends were struggling, of course, they were like they were just as terrified as I was, they were just as upset, they were just their lives were thrown around as much as mine had been, yeah. so I, I continually tried to put on this brave face, but it was really kind of yeah just frustration at. And what got you, know, you through whole, it? What I mean.
0: Your husband John was amazing, but what got you through it? Do you think, looking back now with hindsight, what was it that got you through it?
2: My family, my friends—they have been my reason to keep going because I'm very fortunate that I have the most incredible family. Mm. Who you know, including John, my husband, and I'm very close with my parents. My mom is my best friend, and they have been there every single step of the way you know, Mm. my, my family and my really closest friends and they've, you know, through every bit of it, I've had support. Mm. And without that, there is absolutely nowhere. I just, I wouldn't be where I was today without that incredible support. Mm. So I'm, I'm really fortunate. You know, I'm, of course I'm allowed to be emotional. I'm allowed to, I have to, I still have days now where I'm frustrated and bitter and kind of do the why me, I still have them. And I'm, Mm. I'm coming up four years from when it all started Mm but I think that that's totally normal. But, you know, my husband's really great at encouraging me to keep going and Mm. and to look for the next goal. And aside from my, obviously my family, my friends that support network was so important. My animals, my horses were Mm. incredible for me Mm. and my husband. So he's never allowed me to kind of sit and wallow in that respect. So initially I couldn't ride when I first got ill because I just wasn't well enough. So I was very much, we need to get rid of the horses because actually I can't do it anymore mm. I can't ride I can't be with them what's the point in keeping them very very angry very rash sort of mm. Mm. comments on my husband was there is absolutely no way we're getting rid of the horses because you will regret that mm. so he used to literally take me up the stables in my wheelchair and park me in the corner of my horse's stable and I just sit with her just mm. sit mm. for hours just sitting there wrapped up in blankets because I couldn't move and I was you know and and I would just sit there and just be with them. And my horses brought me some a therapy that no
0: mm, mm.
2: no health professional would ever be able to bring me. Mm. So that was massive for me.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, well, the therapy of, of animals is extraordinary, isn't it? And that's the same in the dementia world. Yeah. Horses, dogs, but any animals, Definitely. actually. Yes. So... You know, it's wonderful. I have to say, hearing you talk about your family and friends, and this is where you did get. I mean, I don't like to ever be sort of ridiculously polyanner-ish and positive about things that are obviously absolutely shockingly terrible, really. But then you did get this positive benefit, in a sense, because you and your husband. I hadn't heard this phrase before, not being a military person. But he was unaccompanied, so when he he was 180 miles away from you just explain that when you were working so you were with dylan your son but your husband was which way round was it was he up north and you were south or i can't remember now yeah
2: yeah i was down south so that's where i come from and he was up in the midlands yeah um, yeah so so unaccompanied is quite there's a lot of military families that do that where the serving person will be posted somewhere but the family the spouse the family yes may re- either retain their quarter where they're living or they live in their own house or and so that was just our living situation you know I had a career I had my horses my family my friends that I had absolutely no intention yes of moving to the midlands no intention at all so when he was posted up here he came up here and then at weekends he'd come down so he would be because up you're here. now up
0: there because your husband John said we're going to live together I'm going to look after you yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. He was down at the time when I first became unwell. And he was due to go back up on that Monday morning. So the day after that only she got unwell. Mm. And it was the Monday morning and we woke up and I couldn't a second drive or anything like that. But I was mm. adamant that I needed to go to work. And um, he basically said, I, can't, I just can't leave you. I can't leave you like this. And we were really lucky at the time. Um, his chain of command were just fantastic. And they just mm. said, look, just take some time, be with Steph, be down there, try and help her get her sorted. don't worry about it. So he was able to stay down with me for a good few weeks. Mm. So that meant he was initially there for all the initial testing and all, all of this. But obviously there came a time when he had to return to work and he had to return to work knowing that, you know, we were down there, me and Dylan were down there and my care was falling on my parents and A very very close family friend of ours, who I think he's more he's more like family, and he would come in every day and get me out of bed, sort Dylan out, so that my mum could go out to work because she was still working, and my dad and. It was a team effort, mm. but it really hit home for John and me that actually we didn't want to be apart. He wanted to be the one that was doing that. He did mm. not want to be having to leave me mm. every Sunday evening to go 180 miles away for the week. Mm. Uh, mm. And that's when he said, "Like, we need to do something about it. Mm. And four months later, we relocated up to where he's posted up in the East Midlands. And we've lived there since. Yeah, yeah.
0: I know, incredible, actually. And, you know, I, I read out that quote that you, you did say. You may not sort of sometimes when people hear the quotes, but you actually said that on the telephone to me that, because I said to you, would you change, you know, and you said, no, my life, I'm sort of happier because you've got much more family time. Yeah, which is extraordinary. Yeah. So, and t- tell us now what the, what the Forces Wives Challenge has meant to you. And then we'll get Heather back in as well, because I think when the two of you talk about it, It's great, actually. So tell us what the Forces Wives Challenge has done for you, A, in the admin role, and now, very excitingly, with this, you know, you're actually going to be doing the challenge across the Pyrenees.
2: Yeah. So in that time, I talked about that initial two years of kind of acceptance, getting my head around it. One of the things I struggled with most was that loss of identity and that loss Mm, of purpose. mm. Obviously, I'd given up a career I'd worked hard for, I'd lost all my independence. I couldn't drive, I couldn't do this, couldn't do the other. And I and I really felt as though I just i just lost me. I just mm. lost that whole side of me. Mm. I wasn't I felt like I just didn't have a purpose anymore. Mm. Even though I was a mum, a housewife, and that was all really positive. Like we mm. looked at that as a family really positively. I still felt there was just something missing. I just didn't have anything else to me other than being a mum and a wife. Mm. So yeah, I, I came across the Horses Life Challenge. Read about it. Like I remember looking through the website and reading about the challenges they did and and, this, and I just remember looking and thinking, these are like my people, like <laughs> that adventurous, mm. passionate, brave women. I'd always been like that. That had always mm. been me. and I remember looking through and just thinking, I just there's so much that I
0: mm.
2: can see that I can relate to. but obviously, as you said, I wasn't in a point to climb a mountain. So I got in touch with Heather and, and that basically what I said to her. I said that I really want to be involved in some way, but unfortunately I'm not going to be climbing the mountain with you. Is there some other way I can help? And as it as it happened, you know, the the rest is history, we, we had that initial chat and it and it just my role then with Enforced Life Channel just kept expanding and kept kind of going. And I just found that purpose again. I just found that. Because even me, at that
0: stage when you were doing the admin, which was for sort of membership, wasn't it? You know, even that gave you a role. And and Heather, what did you think when you met this extraordinary woman, this force that is Steph? What did you think? I mean, how did it make you feel as the founder of this Forces Wives Challenge?
1: So, I mean, to be honest, if I'm if I'm really honest, when the email first came through, I was kind of excited because admin isn't my strong my strong. <laughs> I can look like I've got vision, and you know, I like love all the adventures and stuff. So I was really excited for someone to volunteer to come and help. But I I was quite nervous about the disability angle because I didn't really know anyone who was physically disabled. So I was really nervous about causing offence, saying the wrong thing, and then inviting Steph to come along to the challenges. I was really nervous you know, that we'd get it wrong and she wouldn't be able to get access to wherever we were going and I'd get the accommodation wrong, which I have done on numerous occasions. Mm. But I was just so nervous. So I think our natural reaction is to step back and say, oh, I don't want to cause offence, so I just won't engage. Mm, mm, mm. You know, I'm so lucky because I just didn't need to worry because Steph and John are just... Incredible and I can ask them, I can say things, I can say what's the best way of saying this, you know, mm. and they just educate me as as I go along. Mm. I'm feel so lucky. But it's about taking that leap
0: of faith. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think as well, this sort of opens up into the question of often there are discussions at dementia conferences or whatever, or generally about whether dementia is a disability. You know, there are different views on that, and we won't get into all that now, but I think it is interesting really. And Heather, I think before we started recording, you you actually posed that very question, didn't you? You were saying, oh, I don't know whether I, you know, am asking the right question here or whatever. But, you know, and you you raise this question of dementia and disability. And first of all, Heather, pose it as you pose it to me because it was rather good. And then Steph, as somebody who is now living with a disability, perhaps you'd like to not answer it, but take up the discussion for us. So, Heather, you, in a much better way than I've just done, I think, did present an interesting question, really.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, I was thinking about it because, like we were saying, in life you only sort of deal with things, and you you said it before, when mm. they affect personally. Mm. And so dementia is something that I suppose thankfully hasn't really touched my life to a great extent yet. And so my awareness around Dementia is is really quite poor. And so I was just asking you, Nick, actually, is it viewed as a disability? Because I just don't know. And, and Steph, you might you might have an answer on that.
2: I know when we when we were sort of chatting it over earlier, you were saying about it's really how though that person living with either that illness or you know, whether that, that's dementia or something else, how they view themselves. I think for me, there's a real in the disability community, there's two very different sides to it in that you've got people actually, and I know I'm on this side, that actually I'm really not proud of my disability, but actually really happy for it to be a focus. You know, I'm happy to be called disabled because actually for me, you know, there's so many positives in my life because of my disability. You know, I've met Mm. people that I would never have met ever Mm. because I'm disabled. I've had opportunities. Take, for example, Forces Life Challenge. I would never, ever have got involved with them because prior to being disabled, I didn't have the time. I didn't have the time. I wouldn't have had the interest because actually I was off doing my own adventures. You know, I was off riding and doing whatever I wanted, holidaying away with my family and that. So I never, ever would have ever met Heather and found Force to Life Challenge if I wasn't disabled. So for me, that's a real part of my identity, being a wheelchair user, being disabled. Mm. But there are definitely people on the other side of it that actually they don't want to be viewed Mm. as disabled. Mm. They want to be viewed Without that kind of label, and from my personal experience with dementia, I think that's really similar. that kind of is how you perceive yourself and how you want others to see you, whether you see that label because I mean disability is, isn't it? you're labeling it, mm. whether you see that label as positive or negative, and I, I think that that's very, very similar for those living with dementia.
0: Well, that's a very interesting point. whether you see that label, for want for a better word, as positive or negative.
2: Yes, I mean, that's a very good
0: way to put it, I think, because in a way, there's no escaping the fact that you have got dementia, or you have got ME, or you have got your condition, Steph. Yeah.
2: But is it a yeah. positive?
0: Why does it necessarily have to be negative?
2: Exactly that. And and for me, I think as we spoke about is, my life is really positive now. My life mm, is really happy. Mm, I have. Mm. I am very, through all of the struggles I have, and don't get me wrong, I have days where... I really struggle with it. I really mm. struggle with, it. you know, the numerous he- appointments I have to go to and mm. this part of me not working and that part of me and this side effect from medication and mm. and so, you know, life can be a real a real struggle. I'm certainly not saying it's not. But if I look at my life as a whole, I have a really wonderful life and I have a very fulfilled life. I am surrounded by people I love doing things I love. And actually, all of that, like I say, has changed and come about because of my disability. Mm. So I certainly don't see my diagnosis and my my disability in the way I live now as negative. And I think one of the things that you've mentioned is there are people living with dementia that are the same, you know, that, that have now had these, they see things in a different way. Their families see things in a different way. Mm. And actually, it can be a really, really positive experience, you know, out of something that's really negative. I mean. In the day, no one wants dementia, no one wants to be disabled, but actually you can still find really good things that have come out of that.
0: You and I were discussing earlier, weren't we, or all three of us were discussing actually, the fact that it is often when something personally affects you, when you come, when you bump right up against something, whether it be somebody with dementia or somebody with a disability, it can really change your approach, which in one sense is is an indictment of us as humans, because, you know, we should be there anyway. But as you rightly say, and it's good of you to be so honest, that is the natural instinct, I think, often, of most people. It was certainly mine with dementia, like, almost metaphorically crossing the street. I don't really want to sort of go there, because, A, I might say the wrong thing, or do the wrong thing, and also... I just don't really want to go there because I want to get on with my life and you know and and, and, and with dementia people often say, Oh god, you know, and it's a, to do with embarrassing things, you know, like continence issues or um and, and actually when it's your mum or when it's Steph, who I haven't met in person, but I've had a few conversations on the phone, you know, it's such a force of nature and such a positive, you know, physical force actually. Um, you think, well, what the hell was I thinking? And also when the people involved you know, with whatever disability or whatever it might be, when they're very open to talking about it, that's so helpful to all of us. And I know various sort of people with dementia who are so good like that because they will let you feel not worried about saying the wrong thing. And I think we all sort of clam up a bit, dare I say it, particularly in today's society where I'm terrified now of saying the wrong thing about all sorts of issues and you know it does make you sort of clam up. Yeah definitely and I think
1: you know meeting Steph and, and I also include John because he's just fabulous Steph's husband but my eyes are just completely open to this incredible community that really I mean Steph coming on board with Forces Wives Challenge has just completely changed the organisation it mm. really has because. I don't know if it's the right thing to say, but I I don't see her disability now. I just I see Steph, who mm. is incredible. That's yeah, completely the right thing to say. <laughs> She's like the operations manager for Forces Wife's Challenge, and she does her job brilliantly. Mm. And you know the fact that she is in a wheelchair and she has this complex neurological disorder. Obviously, we give her as much flexibility and as much freedom as she needs, and she works and she delivers what she needs with her job
0: Mm -hmm. and it just works perfectly it really does yeah and you talked about the way it's changed you heather that you want to because of what's happened to you you want to mobilize more of society really you know have a bigger vision so that you know steph has transformed the the forces wise challenge but you think in in a broader sense now as well and you realize that you know people with disabilities can contribute to the workforce as you just said so eloquently So that's brilliant. And then, and I think this was John as well, who I must say does sound incredible. I think uh, he came up with the idea, coming to you now, Steph, of, well, this is all absolutely brilliant, but actually, do you know what? If it was an equine challenge, you could do it. So tell us how about, that must've been a fantastic moment when you thought that. And then I think he was going to accompany you, but now you're going alone. Just talk us through all that Steph, and what an amazing achievement that's going to be.
2: Yeah, so I am I am very lucky. John is brilliant. He's so, so supportive and always been really encouraging. So we go along to a lot of the challenges. I go and, and do all the admin stuff. So obviously he has to take me because I can't get there and wouldn't be able to do that on my own. And he comes along and he just mucks in and just gets on with it. He's just great. And I'm very lucky that he's so encouraging. And on that particular occasion, it was quite early on. It was autumn of 21, actually, I think. And Heather needed to come pick something up from me. So we met at uh, the stables where I keep my horses. She came along, we'd already met a few times before that, but she came along to put this stuff up. And I actually didn't realise that she rode horses before that. It's just not something we had hmm. touched on. So she came along to the stables, and I was getting my horse barber sorted. And we were just chatting, basically. we were just chatting about the fact that, yeah, she's a keen horse person, competent rider, very keen. And I don't quite know how we got in the conversation, but, yeah, my husband just sort of looked up and said, well, why don't you do something that you can do? And riding is that thing. And it was like a bit like a light bulb moment. Yes. Me and Heather kind of looked at each other and went. And when oh, we thought oh, of that's, that. That's an idea. <laughs> yeah, why didn't Yeah, exactly. But at the time, it was still very much, oh, I'm very limited on what I can physically do. I'd only just started riding again after having to have some time off from being unwell. And we just kind of we mulled it over we chatted it over we chatted with um another one of our members who runs some a couple of the uk challenges for us and she's actually the expedition lead on the challenge we're doing in june this year uh, and we sort of started chatting it over and we just realized actually this is something we can really seriously we can do this this will be really great uh, and as you mentioned originally the thoughts were that john would accompany us because i have to be lifted on off the horse. Um, obviously, because I can't stand to wait for to get myself up, so he lifts me on and off my horse every time I ride. So uh, John accompanies me on every time I ride because if I fall off, I can't get back up again. And obviously, I do struggle with things like seizures. I have like non-epileptic seizures and that, so we have to be really careful. I can't be out in the saddle on my own. So the original plan was that we would find something that John could either accompany, maybe on a bike, accompany the group of us, or could meet us at certain points to get me on and off when we'd stop for lunch, things like that. When we started looking into it, we did, you know, I did loads of research, spoke to lots and lots of different providers. We were looking at being a UK challenge, then we were looking at overseas. Um, and we ended up, after lots of kind of chatting about it, me, Heather and, and Ronnie, the, the other lady supporting, we found this wonderful um, organisation that provide adventures in the Pyrenees. And i I had this long conversation with the lady that runs it called Penny. And I basically told her, this is what we want from it. It needs to be a challenge. It needs to be physically demanding. It needs to be technical because, you know, this isn't a group of us going away on a riding holiday. This is a group of us going away and needing an actual, a real challenge because that's what we do. But I need to be able to go and, you know, my wheelchair, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So she came back to me and the one of the providers, the provider she works with, his name is Govan, who has his horses out there. And Basically, came back to me and said, Right, this is what we could do, and you won't need to bring John because Govan all said he'll lift you on and off the horse. And initially, I went into this complete state of panic like, Absolutely not, I'm not traveling overseas without my husband there to be looking after me and, mm. and there for whatever happens. I really did. I was like in this anxiety, a state of anxiety, like basically just pooping in that idea that wasn't going to happen. Mm. And then when I actually kind of put it to Heather and Ronnie and said, well, I put it to my husband first, actually, and he was like, go for it. You don't mm. need me there. Mm. So I put it to Ronnie and Heather, and again, both of them went, oh, my word, that would be incredible. Mm. What an achievement would that be? That adds a whole nother level to this being a challenge because it would mean we can do it as a team of women, as a team of forces' wives, kind of on our own as such. So
0: massive, you said to me, a massive bolster for your independence.
2: Huge, because I never imagined I would ever travel overseas without my husband for a start mm. i mean i'm just, i haven't flown since being in a wheelchair mm. Mm. so i'm even nervous about that even just you know going to the airport things like that. my husband is my carer and he takes me everywhere mm. Mm. and it's, it's that safety behind that isn't sure. it and
0: I completely understand
2: so it was it was a really big that yeah. leap of faith talking about that it was a really big kind of we looked over it we talked every possibility you know we had those conversations and actually that's when we made that decision and, and the expedition, we called it, it's Ride to Freedom. So that kind of, that's where it came from. So it's really developed from there. And as you mentioned uh, earlier on, it's got the military historical link. We are riding over the Pyrenees from France to Spain, and we are recreating as closely as we can the most famous Freedom Trail, which was used in World War II to escape France. We're doing that 130K ride. It's going to be technical. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be up and down, steep ground, uneven ground. It's going to be really exactly what we want. It's going mm. to be a challenge. And we are doing it as a team of eight of us. And the the most incredible thing that's happened more recently is, obviously, as I mentioned, the whole idea was Govan would lift me on and off the horse. But we've got our team of ladies. They are fantastic. Our team of ladies, you know, went for a selection process last year and we have the most incredible team. The age and of you are doing it. Yes. Eight. And we've got, well, it's a team of nine because we've got one lady who's our reserve and she's just fantastic. So she won't be out there with us, Mm. but she's involved in absolutely everything else in the run up to it. And Mm. and all of them are really passionate about helping me. Mm. So in the beginning, I was very much, don't worry, the rest of you won't have any responsibility for helping me. Heather and Ronnie have said they'll do all my care needs. They'll help me. Govan will lift me. I was very standoffish about the idea of other people mm, supporting. Mm, me. I didn't want to ask. I don't want to ask that. I don't want to be a burden. Mm. But actually, when we got the team together, when the team was selected, and we all kind of started meeting and coming together, all of these wonderful mm. women were like, "Well, but we want to help you. Yeah. We want to do it with you. Yeah. This isn't it. You know, you you completing it with our support. That's an achievement for us too. Yeah. You know, a lot of them were from the very offset from that first application they sent in. They wanted to support me. Mm. And these are women that I've never met there. I only know them through Forces Wise Challenge. Mm. And they kind of said, we want to be able to do it, just the eight of us. So we've actually now developed techniques with a bit of imagination and a lot of laughter while we were trying, have worked out that the girls can get me on and off a horse now. Brilliant. So we we practiced that with my horse. We had our first practice session with a couple of them a few weeks back. We've got the, another couple coming out in a few weeks' time. So that was them saying, but we want to be able to do absolutely every element of it. And that includes yeah. getting you on and off the horse. That's so, so it was brilliant. Really, yeah, it's incredible, and it was really lovely for me. It took me a little while to go, okay. I understand that you all want to help me, and I'll accept that because I really struggle with, mm. as I say, that feeling of being a burden and not having independence. Mm. But I realised that they were all offering to do it. They all want they to want, do it. They want. They, they want to do it. A yeah, it's a support aspect. They, you know, it's them that want to. It's not me asking.
0: No, they wanted it. You know, it's really coming through very powerfully there, Steph. This. It's incredible when a group of people come together and it'd be wonderful if we could sort of harness all this as a society, because it's what we want to do really in an ideal world where you get so much from giving, you know, people do get a heck of a lot and there is something about the vulnerability we show each other and how, what that brings out in other people. And Heather touched on that when she said, you know, this is all about Heather's wanting to mobilise more of society. We can all start feeling like that so that we all work together and how it's given you your, your independence. And I do recommend that people watch the documentary The Hardest Climb, which is about that first challenge of the 12 women going up the tallest volcano, because 12 of you start, 6 of you make it. And for me, the most powerful moment of the film, really, was when... One of the team, I think a couple got altitude sickness, but one didn't had to be sort of medicalized off the mountain, and that was a terrible blow for her. But then to compound the sort of awfulness of it, somebody, you know, the doctor said and somebody's got to accompany her, which is terrible. So you were doing this kind of vote, you put your names in a hat and you were pulling them out, and it was awful because somebody was gonna have to sacrifice their own climb. And then this wonderful woman called was it Etta said
1: yeah that's right Etta
0: yeah stop I'm gonna do it and it was such an act of kindness but actually she obviously wanted to do it to go back to Steph's point you know she wanted to do that for somebody else and really sometimes I think we're quite hard on ourselves or the media are generally you know it's always like how awful people are but actually I find people are really quite nice you know (laughs) they want to do these things if you give them the opportunity so you know thank you very very much you two for coming on and, and sharing your experiences and I do hope that my listeners out there who I know generally have a sort of dementia bent and that's what you might have expected to hear about but can see all the echoes there of what we as a society can do if we have a changed mindset and and how we can you can achieve anything and you can help people like Steph or whoever it might be achieve the impossible what seems to be impossible but they can do it and we all benefit from it so thank you very very much and i think we'll report back after june maybe and see how you get on with your ride to freedom good luck thank Thank you you so so much much.
2: thanks for having us on it will be great to chat again afterwards i decided to stray off subject a little
0: with today's podcast because I felt that Heather and Steph's lives bore almost uncanny echoes of those affected by dementia. Heather's initial loneliness mirrored that of so many carers. Her misconceptions of military wives brought to mind the common misconceptions surrounding dementia. And most of all, what struck me talking to the two women was the enormous strength to be found in togetherness, community, and shared experiences. So I hope that you can see why I went off piste podcast-wise, so to speak. Also, in all my dementia work, my blogs and podcasts, I like to focus on hope, whether it be in the shape of Shube Banerjee, the Professor of Hope, or the incredible way in which Dr. Jennifer Butte sees her own dementia as a glorious opportunity to view the condition from the inside out, or the fact that Steph Quintrell has made the very best of the cards that life has dealt her, because there's a strong, positive, uplifting lesson for us all there. Find out more about the Forces Wives Challenge at www.forceswiveschallenge.org where you can read all about how to support them as they prepare to undertake their ride to freedom across the Pyrenees this June. And finally... If you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.